Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I just got dinged on Twitter, and I'm confused about it. I, I was confused about that too. And if you if you saw my comment that I just left right after we uh, before we logged on here, um, I don't understand what's happening. I while well, you're looking oh, for oh, you're so cute. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you for defending my honor, and I'll. Go ahead and tell people what this was, because it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, we were listed in, uh, we were sort of tagged in uh, a tweet by Peter Bogosian, who's a very controversial figure, I think, on on Twitter. Uh, but it was about an upcoming appearance that we're going to make, uh, along with Megan Daum and Sarah Hader from A Special Place in, in Hell podcast at the University of Austin event, weirdly in Dallas, in um, in June. Yep, yep. And there's a lot of other kind of marquee names of people that are going to be there. You've got um, uh, John McWhorter. No, not John McWhorter. Oh, Greg, uh, maybe John's going to be there, but Glenn Lowry's going to be there. Barry, oh, Barry, Weiss. Barry Weiss is going to be there. A lot of people that are sort of in this sort of circle. So when Peter made the tweet yesterday, he he tagged, a lot of people, but he didn't say anything like specifically about any of us. Yeah. So, so somebody, um, somebody responded, tell Sarah Heppola that she will never be as brave as Christine Blasey Ford. There's nothing daring about agreeing with your boss's wife about Judge Kavanaugh. And I was like, I've so many, I've so many questions about this. First of all, who is my boss? Uh, me, I, as I wrote, I, I thought I was your boss. So I, Nancy's cute tweet to this was, I thought I was your boss. Well, I mean. <laughs> I know. It's so confusing. <laughs> Who's my boss? I don't have a boss and I'm not being, I'm not being like, uh, you know, elite or anything. It's just that I'm a freelancer and I don't have a boss. The last boss I had was like at Salon and he was a gay man. And I'm like, what? <laughs> It's going on. So then I was like, oh, and also, oh, and then the larger thing is like, what the hell did I say about Christine Blasey Ford and Judge Kavanaugh? Because I wrote a story about them uh, years ago for the New York Times that basically was premising that uh, Brett Kavanaugh probably did have a blackout right. and therefore could not remember the night in question, which is why they could both potentially be telling the truth, meaning that she's telling the truth and he's saying it didn't happen, but it's because he's got blank spaces in his brain because he was a really heavy drinker. And he had showed in early parts of the like early parts of the questioning that he didn't really understand what a blackout was. And then they they changed that line of questioning and it was really frustrating. That piece went really super viral. And I was really proud of it because I felt like I was doing something that I always want to do, which is kind of make sense of both sides. And I don't, I don't know Christine Blasey Ford, my God. I mean, but I was really super moved by her testimony and I have a lot of admiration for her and, and I have questions, but I mean, whatever. So anyway, I had no idea what she was talking about. And then I was like, oh, you know, is this about that Atlantic article? And she's talking about Jeffrey Goldberg's wife. I, did you have to refresh me? I, well, my Atlantic article, the things right. I'm afraid to write right. about. Right. And I talk about Brock Turner. I talk about I talk about um 
how I think that Brock Turner case, the Stanford sexual assault case, is really misunderstood. Sure. So let me just ask you a question. I don't know what this has to do with your boss's wife. Jeffrey Goldberg's wife is part of that. I Brock don't know. Turner okay. Um, I wonder if it's, you know, people become extremely doctrinaire about things, and you know this, and this is sort of like why you wrote the things I'm afraid to write about. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm pretty sorry. I, I, you can hear that. My phone was ringing. We're going to turn that off. And I wonder if she's just got like a few little pieces of the puzzle and has decided you're on, you're, you're the bad puzzle piece. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I I mean, I think I gave her a few pieces of a puzzle and she completed it to be a puzzle that is not actually me, but makes sense in her mind. She's, um, I responded to her. I just said, you know, I'm confused. Who's my boss's wife? And why do you think that I think Christine Blasey Ford isn't brave and that I am so brave? I don't particularly think I'm not brave. So whatever. Um, I haven't really ranked me and Christine Blasey Ford. I feel like I don't have enough information to really make that assessment. <sighs> um, but anyway, and nor do, am I interested in it. Here's the thing. So on her Twitter bio, she says, like, I don't respond to online responses. If you want to say something, just call me. And she gives her phone number. What? And I was like, you know, maybe I'll call oh, her. Oh, you're going to do this, aren't you? You're yes. going to do this. Why not? Yeah. Well, actually, okay. So can I break from this for one second? Yeah. So I I um, posted a piece last night on my Substack, one that I really had to, I told you I had to really pull it up from my guts. And um, there's actually a small section in there where I, there's a very short video clip of me asking to speak with someone um, because I thought this was a way to sort of approach a question. We seem to have a sort of fundamental disagreement and I wanted to have a little conversation about it. And his response was to block me. Um, oh, so yeah. I remember it, that. Remember yeah. That. Right. So it's interesting that she's like sort of she's the one that's like throwing something out there and saying, call me. So I would be very interested to see how that goes. And if there maybe she's confused you with someone else. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's I think the the call is is worth it to me because I guess I'm interested in data collection on what people's assumptions are about me out there if that's a I mean is is there something that I don't know about it it seems like a long way to walk for a annoying Twitter comment but I am really curious when somebody sort of fundamentally misunderstands you um it's an unsettling feeling and and it's unsettling anywhere but when they do it publicly it's sort of like what what just happened there is this is this shared yeah well and this also, by the way, uh, listeners, this happened like 30 seconds before we went on air. So uh, Sarah doesn't have a lot more information than that. But hey, um, uh, I, I have a question for you. Is there something you want to share with the class? Did you um, did you teach some people some German last night? <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, I started teaching college last night for the <laughs> I, know. I love it. <laughs> Sorry, and I think you now need to call me Professor Heppela or or Frau Frau Schindfrude. Well, okay. So I had like 19 students in this class, and I'm just teaching one class. I'm like an adjunct. I'm like a low a low level scrub, and uh, it's the first class I've ever taught officially since I taught high school for like a brief hot second in like 1998. 
Um, so like everything was confusing to me. Like, like I didn't know how to, there was like this screensaver on a screen that was like really annoying behind me and I wanted it to go away and I had to get somebody to like one of the kids to like pull the screen up and shut it down. And I think I might've like broken the system, but who knows? And then, and then there was a whiteboard, like a white erase board. And that's what I want. I just want to be able to like write a few things if I wanted to. And so somewhere in the discussion, uh, a phrase came up that they didn't know. And I was like, oh, this is a good phrase. You guys need to know this. So I wrote it on the board and the word was schadenfreude. Um, and they were just like, what the what? And I was explaining <laughs> that it was the perfect ter- term to sort of describe modern malaise. And I explained what it was. Um, the marker was really lousy. So I was like squeaking and like having to press hard. And it's, I hadn't written on a, on a whiteboard in probably like 10 years. So I'm like all nervous because they're all watching me. I made my ease all weird. But anyway, afterward, I was on a break and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a three hour class that meets once a week. So we take a little break in the middle. And at one point I took a picture of the desk with the whiteboard behind it and the word shot and Freud written on it. And I sent it. I said I texted the picture to Nancy. Yep. Um, and I wanted I her just, to know that my that my my lessons were going swimmingly. And I was just proud that she was able to spell it correctly. I mean, I, I think I might be able to spell it correctly first time out, but maybe my not. mother taught German. My mother taught German, oh. and she used to kind of she still uses like she just drops random German words into you know. Mm-hmm. Like she'll just do like ein bisschen or like choose, you know, <laughs> she'll just say stuff. And then I took German in college and I really liked it. I only did it because Spanish was full and I had registered late. But um, I really like the German language because it's so goddamn grammatical. Like it's so it makes so much sense. Huh. If you're like a grammar nerd, it's like a it's like a relatively easy language to to learn. So. We had, I thought it was pretty interesting. There was a story that dropped this week that you, you said you would, I don't, can't remember what you told me, but like you, you wanted to read it even before it came out. And it was by, um, Ellen Barry. In the before New we get to the, can I yes. issue a correction? Oh yes, that's right. Correct. Go ahead. It's not really a correction. It's more like a follow-up because I'm still on this like long journey to understand Sex with Dead Chickens. Oh, man, Sarah. <laughs> I know, but it's it's my building's Roman. <laughs> and, and a friend of mine texted me something, and I thought it was really interesting. And so just because, like, I'm on a journey to understand why the morality of this is wrong or if it's wrong or how to, like, categorize it. Like, I need, like, like... I need help. So this is my friend, Adam. He's really smart. He listens to our podcast. And this is what he texted me. First, it's not possible to have sex with a dead chicken. You're just masturbating using a dead chicken, which I thought was a very good point. Oh, that's true. He's right. That's true. Second, you must make a critical distinction between people and chickens. People cannot own other people, but they can own chickens. The question becomes a little more salient if you had said a dead dog instead of a dead chicken, because it's easier to relate to the idea that a person could love a dog. So that got my head, you know, my my little wheel spinning. And so I, I, I'm i going to talk to him. We're going to have dinner on Friday. And 
going to talk to him a little bit more about this situation. He's he's good and philosophical. So maybe I'll come to a little more peace and I'll keep everyone up to date on that. Well, I have to say in the comments, there were a lot of people commenting on the dead chicken issue. So I think I think it's a service. I'm going to get canceled for this. The, no, you're this not. This is what that woman yeah, should but- have actually said. Like... Also, tell Sarah Heppola that nobody should have sex with dead chickens and we are masturbate in front of dead chickens and and we condemn her. I'm just waiting for the little drop of me being like, if you want to have sex with a dead chicken, go for it. Alrighty, so I don't remember. No, what I'm was- sorry, I just needed that. I oh. needed to make that that little interruption, but now I turn the wheel back to you, my better half. Well, you, I believe, were the one that sent this to me. I think it was three days ago in the Times. It was a follow up to the Susan Meachin story four days ago by Ellen Barry, who actually um, had some long conversations with the romance novelist who, at the end of 2020 committed suicide. And then at the beginning of January of this year, came back. And this caused um, some hurt feelings, some confusion, a lot of condemnation. And one thing that Sarah said at the end of our show when we spoke about this two episodes ago was, you know, Susan, if you're out there, I've got some questions. Well, Ellen Barry got to her first. And we did get some answers. And one thing I learned yesterday, which I did not know, do you know um, what faking your suicide is called? The term for that? No. Pseudocide. Pseudocide? Is that not cool? I mean, that's like perfect. I I learned that yesterday because I was looking up. I wanted to find out because the article opens with police driving down the driveway to Ellen Barry's house. Oh, Susan Meachin. Sorry, Susan Meachin. Sorry, Ellen Barry's the journalist. Um, and I was like, wow, is it is it illegal to fake your own death? And apparently it is not illegal in either federally or in any state to fake your own death. Um, but it does cause a lot of other problems, especially in the very tiny insular little fishbowl that is the romance novelist world. Um, uh, I I found that there were some very interesting things in this article. I was especially interested in her husband. Um, But um, Mm -hmm. let me ask you your impressions of this piece, Sarah Hepla. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I think there were so many like um, gratifying reveals of this story. Mm -hmm. It was one of those those moments when I had all these questions and some very smart enterprising person had gone and done the legwork to get me those answers. Mm -hmm. It was great. I wished this story had gone on for pages and pages. And I, I told Ellen Barry, like, I, I hope you sell the, the Netflix, the, the, Mm -hmm. the rights for the Netflix docuseries. Cause I'm, I'm in on this story. So I had expressed skepticism that did Susan Meachin even exist? You know, or was her, there a daughter? daughter. Was there a, right. Yeah. Right. Was there anybody? And what this story uh, clarifies is that she does exist. She is a real person. She does have a daughter. She has a husband, as you as you mentioned. Um, I think some of the things that hit me, I mean, early in the piece, uh, it's discussed that she has some mental illness issues. Well, she and, named her she named her Facebook group the ward. 
as a sort of play yeah. on a on a psych ward. And she was under medication and she was diagnosed as as manic depressive, which I think if I'm if I'm not misremembering, we even said it sounded like, you know, this sort of behavior mimicked that we said in the last episode. We called it armchair therapists. Yeah. So she has this quote that I think is worth sharing. Um, This is Susan Meachin speaking. I think it's a very dangerous mix up, especially if you have a mental illness. She's talking about the internet. I would log on and get in, and at some point in the day, my two worlds would collide, and it would be hard to differentiate between book world and the real world. It was like they would sandwich together. And and that was fascinating to me because I think all of us have, all of us who are very online uh, might sympathize with somebody that's having a little bit of a hard time trying to figure out what's the real world and what's not the real world, you know, like what's fantasy and what's play and what's for real. And I'm a creature of imagination. So I know like with every one of my boyfriends, there's a certain element of like, I don't know what's my fantasy and what's really happening here. It can be hard to distinguish. But I guess two things strike me about that statement. One is that I think the internet and especially the kind of frothy chambers of social media and online chat rooms and and Facebook pages and stuff like that can be really confusing for someone that has mental illness. And at the same time, I also worry that the internet is inflaming certain kinds of mental illness in people that wouldn't necessarily have surfaced in absence of the internet, if that makes sense. Well, of course. I mean, you because you can constantly get it um kind of activated, right? If yeah. you're it's like a it's like a little it's like a little pain point or a little pleasure point. You can ki- constantly constantly press it. But I I think there's an additional layer here which her husband spoke about and which you know, we know axiomatically is true. She was also writing fantasy and romance. Yep. So you've she's got her life which is as a sort of, you know, like middle-aged, heavy-set woman who's daughter is probably out of the house now and her husband's a long haul trucker and she's writing these, you know, these romances where, you know, what bodice ripping in love and then also get creating a world online where you can either get validation or you can get destroyed. So it's like a triple decker. And according to her husband, it was just making her it was putting her in an extremely bad place. And they were all concerned about her. And apparently she'd had a few suicide attempts before. And then her daughter came home one day, her husband was off, he's a trucker, and found her, she'd overdosed on Xanax and was apparently, I think it was limp as a noodle. And um, I, according to the article, and it sounded pretty true, the husband was the one that says, you're done. We're, we're, we're saying you're dead. We're saying yeah. you're dead because you need to this is as we think it's this drastic. I think it's this drastic. You need to get out of this. Now, I don't, we can't know or we can't know yet or ever whether it was completely his decision. But he said, he said he was going to take the fall for all of it because obviously she's the one that's been being piled up. Now, it's a more complicated story than that because she's then, you know, she's alive, but she's dead to the world, but she's lurking and she's creating online persona, which is, okay, that's what you do with the internet. This is what people do. That's right. I, I, I really 
came away from this, um, you know, as you know, I've written about hoaxers and I've written about people who've, you know, in, in air quotes or however you want to call it, duped other people and pretended to be other people and how people feel betrayed. And I get it. But I got to say, first of all, because Barry is a very good writer and she's very sensitive and she really, she told the story without a lot of like, like splashes, you know, she just sort of let it unfold calmly. And and I'm sure there's more to it, which I think you got the sense of when you communicated with her. Um, but I, I did say to myself, you know, her fake death has probably been the most exciting thing that has happened to the romance novelist world in a long time. And well, they that are, particular, that particular circle, sure. Yeah, the small circle. And which is, you know, yeah. somebody else, I read another piece, um, that maybe I can't remember who it was, Laura, somebody, uh, where she's like, like, this is not, you know, people are saying this is about the book world. This really kind of isn't about the book world. This is about a self-published romance novel world, which exists. Yes. And I, I, but it's not like, you know, it's not the, it's a, it's a little part of the book world. And, And I think that this has been pretty melodramatic and pretty exciting to them. It's it's a lot to talk about, whether you're angry, whether you're titillated, whether you're never going to speak to her again, whether you've got a book project out of it. I'm sort of wondering, like, I think they're probably enjoying it. Well, (laughs) I mean, you know, they're getting their money's worth, maybe. But like, um, isn't it funny that this really is like a plot twist you'd read in a romance novel? I mean, that seems like a yes. really obvious thing to say. And I, oh. it just now occurred to me, like, this is totally like a plot twist out of a one of these, one of these Ooh. books. Well, um, then I was, it, was to... her husband helping her write the books then? Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. Um, I wanted to quote something else from this piece. Um, like you said, this is really about the subculture of people self-publishing online. And, and this is the romance um, arm of that, but there's a lot of different arms. I mean, there's sci-fi, there's YA, there's memoir. Oh my God, the industry for memoir writers trying to get published is just massively lucrative. I've yet to dip a toe into that. Um, but my God, there are a lot of middle-aged people that will be separated from their money to to go to oh, some yeah. sort of workshop or convention or whatever, or like exotic trip to a location with a fancy writer in order to get the sort of feeling that they will publish one day. And maybe they will, because, you know, I I don't know if it works or not. But here's a here's a great quote. I think it really illuminates this industry. Okay, this is from another romance writer. She says, a lot of people get into this type of business thinking they're going to make millions, like Stephen King or James Patterson. Uh, The reality is it's a money pit. You are literally tossing your money into a pit, hoping someone will find you. You know, there might have been a time in my life where I would have been like, oh, man, that's so sad. Or, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to go spend $8,000 to go to some conference and someone's going to like puff you with air. It's never going to happen. But you know what? They get something out of it. They enjoy the idea, hope. They enjoy the idea of hope. And you know what? People like to write or they don't. If they go home and they don't write, okay, that's fine too. But like, 
they feel like they're part of something. It gives them something. That's fine. But but for someone who believes that they're going to actually make a living at it, of course, it's problematic, but you're going to find that out pretty fast. You know, you know I, have a, I have a close friend who is has never been that interested in writing, I think because it was kind of too stuffy and literary. She's super funny, super smart, but just not that way. But she got really interested in writing romance. It was actually in the years after her mother died, which I thought was not so much related to her mother as much as it was like that it was a calm and safe place that she could kind of retreat to when she was... Uh, like overwhelmed with motherhood mm. and work. And she's been going to these conventions for years now. And, you know, I think they are expensive. I think that she, you know, she's married to a pretty successful lawyer. So, so that works out. But, um, but like, she's really gotten a lot out of it. And I think there's a really good chance that one of her books will get published. I mean, she's won a bunch of awards. She's never oh. let me re read any of them, but I want to. And I bet they're good because she is clever and funny and, uh, and, and sweet and all the things that I like in readers and in writers, you know? And so, you know, for those, those people who didn't get to walk down the path of like college classes and internships in New York and making all the network friends in a coastal city. Like these can be a really cool way to find a network that to an um, industry that just feels befuddling. And it's also community. People like to like, no. they like to feel like they're part of it. It's like, you know, I'm a fly fisherman. Well, I like to go to medieval jousting things. It's like I go to literary conventions and I see my friend Anne that I saw last time and we talk about this cool thing and it's fine. Let them do it, you know? And if they write, write. That's great. And if they don't, that's fine too. Most people are not going to write the book that they think they want to write. That's, that's the reality. Believe Remember me, I know that. I'm living that reality. <laughs> you need to tell me. Yeah, but you know that you will. That's the thing. Ugh, three I years know. Headline. I know, God. but I the, the article I published last night. It was just like, when is this? When am I going to be able to finally pull this out of my back tooth? But it it they come. It comes. Um, pull this out of your back tooth. Isn't that a phrase? It is now. What is a back tooth. Back pull tooth. Your back tooth. Your tooth. I oh, don't pull know. Pull it out like a back tooth. I don't know, Sarah, from... No, I'm I, sorry. I like your metaphor. I'm not... This I, is not a criticism. I, I've just something I think I've heard for years. It's like, oh, I've got to, I had to like pull it out from my back tooth. I don't know oh. if I made that up or if I heard it somewhere, but... Like, All right. Really, well, listeners can tell us whether this is a if common... If that's a thing. A common saying, particularly in New York in the 1970s among precocious teens that like to wear halter oh, now, tops. Oh, now, now, now. That's or true. What? what? I'm just that's, generalizing. Yeah, I got to, you know, I don't have practically any pictures from my teenage years, but if I did, I'm wearing a halter in 90% of them. That's a halter, so cutoffs, argyle knee socks, and high top Chuck Taylors. I mean, I don't know what to I, tell you here. Oh, I, that is so hot. <laughs> I used to be so jealous of girls that wore halter tops because I just thought it was like such a sexy look, you know, to have all that skin showing on your shoulders and then your belly showing. And, you know, it's really like it's such a tease because it's one like really exciting tug away from giving away some of the goods. Well, but it's because, not a tube top. 
I mean, that's a tug away. A halter top. Oh, yeah. I was confusing you know, a tube top. Yeah. And a you know, I still, I mean, you can see it right now. I bear, I practically never wear sleeves and a halter is just a nice, I still wear halter tops. No, you're right. I wear halters all the time. They look really good yeah. on me. Um, They're sexy. Actually. So, okay. Okay. I don't have jealousy now. I was, okay. in my mind, I definitely had this like tube top situation going on. And those, I couldn't wear those because I was so sort of like precociously developed. I, I, we don't have jealousy for each other. And I will say, because you didn't tell me, even though I'm your boss, you did not <laughs> tell, you did not tell me that a couple of days ago you were on Bill Schulz's show. I had to find out from Andrew Wimsat, who sent me the entire episode and you look so beautiful. Oh my oh, God. Thanks. I'm going to, I'm going to link it. We're going to link it because Sarah Heppler looks hot. So, um, you, you know, um, I, thought that I told you about no, that. No, no, no. Okay. Well, it's okay. It's, my it's, other okay, boss, Sarah. Then. it's your other boss. Your, Sorry, your it was other, his other mysterious. It was, your, it was Jeffrey Goldberg. I told, <laughs> you told Jeffrey Goldberg. You told his wife. <laughs> yeah. I told his wife who's my real boss. <laughs> um, um, wait. Okay. I had something I wanted to say. Yes. And I forgot what it was. Okay. But um, I can fill in I think some. It was going to be really good. I could fill in some. Oh, I know what it is. I am jealous of you sometimes. Why? I don't know. It's just like. Oh, you're it's not. It's native to me. I have no. sibling rivalry with people, you know, because my brother and I were like constantly in competition growing up. And like, I have jealousy with people that I love. Like, it's just, it's not even, it's not like a toxic jealousy. It's like, a, oh, she did that. I can do that. Well, I that's do not that too. That's not jealousy. That's like a little bit when, when something like it revs you. I this is a, this is a this is a true statement, and it's weird, and I don't know when it happened, but it was quite a while ago. I lost. I think I could still get jealous, like if a girl was hitting on my guy or something like that. But in terms of jealous of other people, I completely lost it. I don't. I just don't have it anymore. I remember telling my daughter that a couple of years ago, and she's like, "Oh, good for you, mom." Speaking of that. Sorry, I got to do a little parental bragging here. My daughter's film, Fancy Dance, I may have said this last time, uh, made it into Sundance, and she is getting on a plane to Sundance today. So my kids, it's, I've never been to Sundance, so, um, but my kid will be there today. So if you're there, you see a beautiful young woman who's my daughter, say hey. Um, Sundance is fun. I went once as a journalist. Um, I was on a, I forget why I went. I feel like I got some sort of free trip. That seems very weird. Why was Sundance giving away free trips? No, but no. I think they did. And I I went with my boyfriend at the time, and it was super fun. Um, the beer there, I was still drinking, and the beer in Utah is all like lower ABV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you drink a yeah. bunch, and you're not that drunk. It's really confusing. But the high <laughs> elevation makes it so that you are a little bit more lightheaded. And I the that year, do you know the movie Eat Too Much? Oh, gee, no, Sarah. What are you talking about? Why would I know that movie? It's like the milk. Oh, my God. That movie. Oh, my God. No, it's so hot. It's crazy hot. It's crazy hot. And so I was, was, this was like a couple years after that movie had come out. And I was so in love with Gael Garcia Bernal. I mean, also Diego Luna, but Gael Garcia Bernal has those blue eyes. Who has the same birthday as me, by the way. Okay, October. now you just got 10% hotter. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so I was like the whole time, and he was going to be at Sundance. So the whole time I was like bugging my boyfriend. Like, 
Like, is that him? Is that him? Is that him? And on the last morning we were eating in the dining hall, I looked over and Gael Garcia Bernal was eating at the table right next to me. And I grabbed my boyfriend's hand and I was like, that's him, that's him, that's him, that's him. And he was just like, oh my God. Did you go like and take his dirty spoon and keep it and you still have it in your hope? Yeah, I took his dirty spoon and then I slid it into my mouth. Slowly. And I sucked it out right in front of him. And I said, this is you next. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, I'm such a dork. I didn't even say anything to him because it's impossible in those situations. It's really, really hard to bridge the gap that is the weirdness between you and somebody that's famous. I once very drunkenly walked up to Henry Thomas, who is was Elliot in E.T. Yep. At a bar. And I was like, and my friends were like, no, 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 no. And I was like, watch me. And I walked oh, up and boy. I was like, hey, I loved E.T. And he was yeah. like, thank you. And I was like, just standing there like I wouldn't leave. Oh, and I was gosh. like, so... Do you know Drew? Like, what oh, am I doing? Yeah, yeah, don't do that. That's not, that's, that, yeah, not good. Um, no, hey, I was very drunk and I made a vow never to do stupid stuff like that. Anymore. I have a question for you, Sarah Hepla. What, what is the name is, of this podcast? What is the name of this podcast? This podcast is this called podcast. Smoke Him If You Got Him. Yes, it is. Um, and hello. Which is a I, metaphor, which is a metaphor. It's not. Right necessarily we're not necessarily talking about cigarettes my no. dumb ass does smoke cigarettes but nancy who's obviously smarter than me doesn't smoke <sighs> cigarettes no but i'm convinced that we're getting um suppressed on twitter and the socials because of the name of our podcast and also because you put the word penis in your tweet yesterday i know i put i put can penises be frostbitten which i thought was news we could use and then when it went on twitter <laughs> There was a little thing like when you go look at the um, when you go look at the at the post, it's like a gray box and it says this this tweet might contain sensitive material and okay, I was like penises are sensitive. unlike the rest of the fucking internet yeah that's right oh okay How many people got to talk about Harry's frostbitten penis and didn't have that warning tell me I don't know Sarah it's you. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. You know why I hate it? Because the internet groomed us to be so thrusty and provocative and like, get the attention, get the attention. And then it was suddenly like, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you've gone too far. Take away the attention. Take away the attention. Like, that's, it's such a bait and switch. I think Twitter, Twitter's going through some weird growing pains here or changing pains. So I, I've actually never, I don't know that I've had that. I did get banned once or not banned i they took my account offline or whatever they, they because i had a picture of blondie the one where she's in a white halter dress and you can kind of see her boobies oh, yeah. yeah i was like what you don't want this incredibly beautiful thing on twitter and i was like okay what do i need to do anyway i'm back obviously um we used to get banned from facebook when in my salon days um when they changed the algorithm because we would do all these personal essays that were often about like really salty things and we had a picture of a man in underwear and we got banned from twitter which was interesting i mean facebook which was interesting because we had lots of women in lacy undies or bras that never got banned but the men the men in underwear was a hard pass huh what kind of underwear uh, I think it was like tidy whities Yeah. Well, those aren't that great. So, um, 
I know it was just a, it was a good image. <laughs> okay, so article. Sarah, what else is on our uh, what else is on our roster? Yeah. I don't know. We're done. Are we are? okay? Thanks, everyone. No, this was um, fun. This is a short one. No, 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 no. We have really interesting things to we discuss. Do. We, do. Um, we do. There has been a saga over an online personality whose name is pronounced, I believe, Andrew Callaghan. Andrew mm-hmm. Callaghan. Mm-hmm. Do you heard of this gentleman? I, you know what? I have to say, I think I'd heard of his show, but I didn't know his name. So, no, I hadn't heard his yeah. name. So, I hadn't heard his name either, but uh, probably about a couple of years ago, I was made aware of a YouTube series called All Gas, No Breaks that was hosted by a kind of young, eccentric, very funny guy that had this sort of roving curiosity. And he would go into things like um, Trump rallies. He was going across the country doing interviews with people, mostly at conservative gatherings. And he was kind of a left-wing dude, but he brought uh, what I guess you would call like a radical empathy. Like he wasn't a judgmental character. And the, the, the clips are worth watching. Some of them are really funny. He's a really, cause he's a, he's a professionally curious person, which is my kind of person. Um, some of them are a little too juvenile for my taste, a little jackassy. Um, meaning the show, the, What's that guy's name? Johnny Dangerous? Johnny Knoxville. I, um, yeah, from Jackass. But yeah. anyway, um, I really dug it. I really dug it. And I remember thinking like, oh, you know, because I drove across the country when I was 27. And I was like, I wonder if I would have done something like this if the technology had been different. Because I was blogging. But it would be really, oh. it would have been really interesting to have a video and to talk to people. You know, I just, I really liked his... I don't know, like a plum. Now, what was but I didn't know anything about him. What was interesting is like he's 25 now. So when he started doing this, he did a 70 day a 70 day hitchhiking trip across the country and just sort of decided to talk to people along the way. You know, and and to, you know, to put it on air, but what he was doing, which was kind of old school, he was actually doing that kind of old school shoe leather reporting. He yes. was going to places. He was talking to people. He was putting microphones in their face. He was listening. He was actually listening. And it's this crazy. is and this is not just about like his personality. I mean, his personality is sort of like he's looks a little like Napoleon Dynamite and he's wearing like kind of uh, a suit, like a not a very well-fitting suit. And he's, you know, he he looks slightly awkward, which well, maybe more than a little slightly awkward. Um, but I'm not really sure whether that was part of a shtick or if that's just how he dressed. I did see, I did watch a segment yesterday when he was talking to some people that were, there had been a shooting and he was talking to some kids. He was really um, quite, I think empathetic is the correct term. He was really listening and he was, it was kind of moving, actually. I thought, yeah. I don't really see this. You know, young people, and I know this because I have a young adult daughter, they don't watch television. They don't have televisions. Um, they're not reading newspapers for the most part. and But they are getting information and they are getting news. Now, are they going to just get it from like TikTok videos? Well, sometimes. Um, but they are also going to be hungry for stories about That's people. Right. And this person is their age or younger or what their age, let's say. And he's yeah. bringing a, what I thought was, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to compare what he does and what I do, but the sort of stories where you're going places and, and like talking about hard things or interesting things or inflammatory things. And I thought that's, that's a service. That's something we, 
I mean, I'm interested in it. And obviously he had a very big following of people that were interested in it because Absolutely. he had- Absolutely. And, 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 and this following is so big that guess who pays attention? HBO. HBO plucks him up and asks him to develop his own show for them. So he drops a show a couple weeks ago. It's called This Place Rules. And I think it's about, I think it's about January 6th stuff, but I'm not exactly sure because I haven't seen it yet. But it was a big deal. You know, this is one of these Gen Z wonderkints that has crossed over into the mainstream. But a couple days after the HBO show premieres, something else drops on TikTok. It is a video by a woman named Carolyn Elise. And she gives about a two-minute video that eventually gets picked up by TMZ. So this becomes huge. I'm going to quote some of her her video. You know, she starts out and she's saying that, you know, she's really nervous. and But she explains, you know, she says, I don't like seeing abusers get platforms. She goes on to refer to the night that he assaulted me, meaning Andrew Callaghan. And she explains that he did eventually get consent, but he wore me down to the point that I eventually agreed to things that I'm not proud of. And I wasn't proud of them. And so I thought they were my fault. And I continued to be nice to him. And she goes on to explain that she's realized that just because she eventually said, okay, whatever, doesn't discount that she had told him no so many times prior to this. Um, He had apparently wanted to stay the night with her when he was in town, he told her he didn't have a place to stay. She said, okay, uh, but we're not having sex. They ended up sleeping in the same bed. Uh, she kept trying all the different angles. I mean, this is very familiar. This will be very familiar to many women. You know, she's just saying like, I'm tired. I'm not feeling this. And she says, you know, but he still found a way to coerce me. Um, she goes on to say, I never thought I'd come forward, but it's even more hard to have to relive the trauma I endured every single day by seeing this man as a social justice warrior, someone who cares about human rights, get a platform. Um, at one point, she did reach out to him. Uh, he texted her back that his life was over because of the things that she'd said. And, you know, I, we'll we'll go on to explain that after she began talking more publicly about this, um, more women did say that this is this was a familiar pattern that they noticed with with one Andrew Callaghan. Um, she goes on to say, you know, it wasn't my fault what happened to me. Uh, she used a phrase that I find so fascinating. He got me really drunk that night. What do you think about that phrase? I think that she doesn't want to take any responsibility. She uh, found herself whether we we really can't. I'm gonna I'm gonna back up one second because I believe this is the same gal. There are two gals that I know of that I read of, and I believe the one that you're speaking of now is the gal that sent this him this hit, sent. Andrew, this text at the very end of December before she came forward, she had been telling him what she was feeling now about their sexual uh, encounter. And I don't know if she was already saying that she might come forward with it, but she said, and this was a text that she sent him anyways, 
If HBO cuts you a fat check and you in any way feel like helping contribute to the massive amount of therapy bills I have accrued from the night you coerced me and the resulting trauma, my Venmo is blank. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is this is before she has this is what I read yesterday. I'll find the link. Um, this is before she comes out. Now we're assuming that he did not Venmo her any money. And I'm sure he was kind of scared about this. Plus you, you know, you have your show is about your premiere, but this is when these things happen. Um, often because, you know, people are in a vulnerable spot. What do I think about? He got me drunk. Well, um, we have heard terrible, terrible stories like in fraternities where fraternity brothers will, stick a funnel down somebody's throat and pour alcohol into it. And, you know, people wind up dead because they get alcohol poisoning because they've been deliberately gotten drunk. Usually other men. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He got me drunk. uh, Sounds extremely active on his part and extremely passive. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you and extremely passive. I just, I mean, it's, um, it sounds like it sounds like she's trying to say she was not participating in the drinking. Like it was something that he perpetrated on her, which I think you might if if she wants to really make her story and her side of this story as solid as possible, she's going to have to make herself look I guess more vulnerable and someone getting you drunk uh insinuates that you are a vulnerable party. That is that is easily taken advantage of, and and he is the one in in this telling, um, taking advantage. So, what do you think well, of that phrase? I think it's fascinating because I read it a lot, and it always pricks my ears because there's such a world of difference, at least perception wise, between I got very drunk and he got me very drunk. Um, I'd been noticing this for the past few years, and I I really didn't like it. Um, in part because my own work with alcohol has kind of taught me that drinking, whether whatever you think about it, was part of the feminist project. I mean, you know, the fact is, is that there were bars that women weren't allowed to enter in the 70s and women getting to take place in those bars and hold their own with the guys, whether it's a good idea or not, was part of a project that uh, asked people to treat us as full human beings and not helpmates and caretakers. And so the agency to get yourself drunk is actually something that women have had to fight for. Um whether this is a a shallow victory or not is is a conversation for another time. Uh, she explains that he bought all this great tequila. And I'm sort of like, the old drinker in me is like, okay, wait. So the guy that buys you tons of expensive tequila, that's a criminal act now? I mean, Jesus Christ, I would have been so excited. I mean, <laughs> look, there is actually a, a, con- a coercion of the bar. And, and I'm very familiar with it. And I I was a victim and villain of it. You know, somebody starts ordering shots. Hey, let's take a shot. Everybody take a shot. And you're like, I don't want to take a shot. And they're like, no, you got to take a shot. And it's yep. it happens all the time. And I do think so. I think her story is very interesting because while I don't disagree with anything that you said, I also think she's she's surfacing a really troubling dynamic that does exist that is rampant, that is gross. Uh, I would say it's not criminal. However, that may be changing as the laws of 
sexual engagement change and the sort of mission creep of that spreads. But, you know, I can't stand Even when I was a drinker, I never liked shots because they made me black out. And it ticked me off when somebody did that. You got to take a shot. Dude, you got it. 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 Yeah. Got your shot. And I'm like, I don't, I don't actually like, can I just have a beer? Let me just have a vodka tonic. Like, let me do this on my own time. And, and they do that. And it's super annoying. And men, I have no Pew research study on this, but I am absolutely certain that men do this more than than women do. They do it to other men, but they do it to women and particularly women that they might like to sleep with later that night because they know that alcohol is a kind of unwritten complicity. It is it will it will lower your inhibitions. It will challenge your judgment. You will do things that you might not otherwise do if you were sober and some people say in vino veritas, meaning in wine there is truth. And I would say that's true after, until about three glasses of wine. And then it starts to become in vino nonsense, whatever the Latin word for that is, because you start doing things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And the next day you can really regret them. Now, it doesn't sound like she was super drunk because she was, well, I, I don't know, but I mean, she was still like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't like it. Like, da, 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 da. And then finally she did the thing. She made the calculation that I think so many women and people, because I think this happens to men too. Absolutely. Um, have made, which is like, it's going to be easier just to get this over with. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a story that I think is really super common to a younger generation of women who were raised in this era of sexual availability without any clear, like, like exit doors to get out of it. Like back in the day, you would just say, I don't want to be that kind of woman. Or you would say, we're not dating. Or you would say, what would my friends think? And now it's like your friends will think you're a fucking hero. Uh, You do want to be that kind of woman. And nobody has sex exclusively in a relationship. At least it's not very ordinary. So they don't have those exit routes. And so they say things like, I'm just tired. I don't feel good. I'm on my period. And they're all sort of fake. And the problem for men, I think young men who are just maybe like this one, as much of a listener as he is, like he was obviously not listening, um, but like they have been taught that Maybe well, no is just hold on a second. Yeah. I mean, you're saying he's obviously not listening, but Sarah, we were not in that room. We don't know what happened in that room. We have no idea what happened in that room. We have her version of what's happening now. We've have his later sort of weird hostage video where he is saying, like, I'm sorry, I didn't do these things, but also I'm an idiot and I don't maybe read things very well. I I no, you're I'm right. Not. You're right. My point. My point was, can I? Can I just? Yes, you, yes. That's an excellent. Yes. That was an excellent adjustment. But I just want to make the rest of my point, which is that for a certain kind of male, um, a lot of times a no can just be a door to a yes. And there's also this understanding, and Bill Burr has a great has a great um, routine about this that we can link in the episode notes. Um, where he, he kind of makes a distinction between like 
you know, women say no means no. And then he's like, no, it doesn't. And you know, it doesn't. And you know, there's a difference between someone saying no and someone saying no. That's no, right. no. Oh, don't, don't. And it gets a big laugh because it's a taboo, but it's, you know, the idea that no doesn't always mean no is such a violation of this social rule that we really, I mean, I actually think it's a really good rule, but I also completely agree with Burr's assessment that so many of these stories are about tone of voice. And it's one of the things that gets flattened in all the Me Too endless reporting is when somebody says no, and this is so complicated, but that doesn't necessarily mean no. no. That's the, I hate saying that. I learned, I think I was 19 or 20. I was going to summer school in, at Harvard because I needed to get a credit. And um, I ran into a friend of mine from college and we went out, we had some drinks. He's like, can I just like crash on your floor and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. And of course he tried. Of course he tried. And I was like, no. And he slept on the floor. Like, you learn that pretty quick. Like, okay, anybody who's young that's listening to this that doesn't know this, if a dude says he wants to come and sleep on your floor, he wants to sleep with you. So just know that when you're going into that. Um, so, but yes, tone of voice. I, you're, you know, you're coming at it from an interesting perspective, especially with the alcohol. I found this story, the timing of this story, very, very questionable. Um, I understand that people feel like empowered at different times, right? But two days after this person's show premieres, this is when you will come out. This seems to me to assure that your story is going to get more traction, which, okay, then that, that's her objective. Um, but it also makes it difficult. It makes it more difficult to parse the truth also because She's doing it in front of millions and potentially billions of people. Where does this person go? How does this, this, you know, this person cannot defend himself. I mean, you watch the video, four minutes and 51 seconds, I believe, of um, Andrew Callaghan speaking to the camera. It's, it's painful to watch. Did you, you watched it, yes? Yeah, I watched it. I thought it was a little bit less painful than some of the other ones that I've seen. You always call them hostage videos. Um, this was an interesting one. Before I, I, I wrote down some of the phrases that he used. So did it's I? Like it's like a bingo it's card, a bingo isn't it? Card. Okay, let's go one after another. You do one, I'll do another because I wrote them down too. All right, go. Accountable. Fully accountable and transparent. Unwanted advances. Thanks to the people who came out. It's never easy to speak out. I'd like to apologize for my silence. Within 48 hours, I'd been denounced by my closest collaborators. Sexual misconduct. Sex pest behavior is normalized. Mental health crisis. I'm not here to invalidate anyone's lived experience. I don't think this is about me. This is about people that I've affected. So I want to express my complete sympathy and support for anyone I've done wrong. That was the last one that I had. <laughs> I have one more. Okay. P- 
power dynamics, pressure, and coercion. Oh, actually, I had that one too. <laughs> it's um, it was okay. I'm actually going to back up, and I'm gonna I'm gonna back away from my statement that it was painful. I actually I had two feelings about it. He seemed rather um poised when he made it. Um, he didn't look like a deer in the headlights. He seemed no, somewhat he poised and composed. Um, but that that composure also a little bit, Sarah, made me kind of worry about mm. where he was at. I don't know this kid guy. No. I but I thought, you know, he's pretty frank. He's like, Well, my career is now over. I mean, we don't know. It's it's fresh. It, he could come back. We don't know. But he is, his career is not over. Right. He's going to, he said he's backing away. You think he's going into a, to a, a rehab or a 12-step or Alcoholics Anonymous? Yeah, it was he's, very, it was very clear that he was going to, going to try to get hold of this alcohol thing and that he wanted to go into a 12-step program. You know, um, I, it really struck me as somebody like a young man who'd realized that what he thought was funny and playful was actually really gross and despicable. And I actually think, and like he says a couple things about like, I thought that I was a loser if I went home from the bar alone. And what he realizes in this moment is that he's a loser because he dragged people home with him from the bar or vice versa. He, he pushed himself into other people's beds. He feared being a loser and he actually was a loser. Um, I was, you know, I've spent the last eight years now kind of rattling the cages of the conversation around alcohol and consent and feeling super frustrated that people don't talk about it more. Um, because talking about it for women can often seem like blaming the victim. At least that's how the saying goes. And I've been called a rape apologist. And, you know, that's that's back to the original Twitter ding that that got us into this whole thing. Um, you know, my problem with the the sexual assault that happened at Stanford is that both those people were drunk and the woman was in a blackout and it's it's she doesn't know what happened. Um and the evidence of that incident does not track with the public record of that incident. And, you know, I find it super frustrating that we don't talk about alcohol and its its role in kind of warping people's behavior. You know, I love booze and I partied my way through college, but it is a very dangerous thing to combine a libertine sexual environment, i.e. hookup culture, with unlimited booze. At a time when people have phones, people have this sort of sense of, I guess, like, they're not going to go to the person in question. They're going to go to the hall monitors. They're going to go to the campus, you know, the campus counselor, and and they're going to exact a kind of revenge um, that probably feels like justice, but I, I think it's not actually... I, I justice. I don't think it's justice. And I also think it's regressive. I mean, I, I'm yeah. not saying people haven't done this since time immemorial and will not do this in all other kinds of areas of life. I read an interesting tweet this morning from someone saying like, I know that mostly, you know, since the pandemic, we're, we're kind of opened things up, but I still remember like being a pregnant woman in 2020 and sitting on a bench in public to catch my breath and being like people running up, you can't sit here. You're going to be like a vector of disease. It's like people will default to this sort of like, 
I'm going to tell on you sort of behavior. And one of mm-hmm. the questions I had after reading about this was, and I, and I think I feel this way always when people are sort of like tattling or, you know, exposing things as opposed to going to the person. Like, what are the objectives of these women? What are, what, what are their objectives doing it like two days after someone's show that they've worked, you know, pretty long time for? What, what do they really want to happen? Now, I know the usual understanding is like, well, I don't want this to happen to other people. It's like, yeah. Okay, well, we know it is. You don't want it to happen to other people. So the way you're going to do that is to make sure that everybody that ever hears this becomes, um, okay, it would be extremely hopeful to say like, wow, now everybody's going to examine their own behavior and examine their own behavior when they go to the bar. Or is it like people are going to be scared as shit to maybe make a wrong move and have their life immolated in a minute? I'd also like to know, um, if you are this young woman, let's say, let's take her as an example, like, what have you gained? And I'm not talking about the possibility that she should have gotten some money or a few friends of her saying, you go girl. Like, what do you actually gain as a grown up? Like, what, what, how are you now a sort of more functioning and productive and kind uh, person in society? Well, to try to answer that question generously, I think the answer would be you had the courage to stare down someone that did you harm. You prevented others from experiencing this as well. You kickstarted a national conversation about coercion and whether or not it's it it really should have such a bright, clear line between that and consent. Um, I I actually like I I don't love these. Um, I very much don't like these public callings out. I've spoken about this before, but I don't, th- I think that if somebody is going to therapy and uh, sort of like, this is like a burr in their side, like there is something there. And, and, you know, I have different theories on, on why this happens. I think sometimes, I think this might've even been this, the case with this young woman that she had an earlier sexual assault. And then this engagement sort of like, kicked up the memory of that and and she was displacing a lot of the fury and the the discomfort with that onto Andrew Callaghan and if that's that's not this woman I apologize it was one of the there's about four different women who have come forward and we'll link some of the stories but you know I do think there I think that there is something deeply messed up in youthful sexuality. Um, and, and I don't mean that as a judgment. I mean that actually with like a great deal of concern because sex has become so front loaded. Um, it comes before a relationship, whereas it used to come after a relationship. And once you're uh, in not a necessarily. relationship, not necessarily. no, I'm saying as a, yeah, yeah not, hashtag not all sex, <laughs> but I mean, like I'm saying that like the, this I'm, I'm quoting to you kind of like Helen Fisher and some of the other anthropologists that study this stuff. Like, like it used to be that the, that the order was date, marry sex. And now the order is sex, maybe date, maybe marriage. It's the exact opposite. And, you know, there is this expectation of sex being sexually game. 
I mean, this is one of those strange things where like Dan Savage, who I actually really love. I mean, I, I, I think I've read articles that kind of ask him to reckon with what he was doing in the culture when he gave us the phrase good giving and game, the three G's, you know, because there's a generation of young women that grew up thinking that in order to be a good lover to anyone, not just to their boyfriend, but to the goddamn guy at the bodega, they needed to be good giving and game, you know, without somebody having earned that, that, that mutuality. Um, and 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 so I, I really think there is something deeply messed up. I don't think it's criminal. I think it's cultural rot. And I think it's also people that are grabbing for a lot of stuff that they think they want and they don't get what they need. You know, they want all the exciting life and the sex and the, you know, and like she wants maybe the high status of knowing this impressive guy. Um you know, sure, you can come to my place because then I'll get to say Andrew, the guy from All Gas No Breaks, was at my place. And, you know, I don't know, like I'm projecting onto her, but I but I think that's that's probably true of a lot of these women. He was he was a sexual pest. He was. I think that's actually a good his own description of him is correct. Uh, I've known I went on a date. Uh, do I want to tell this story? The answer is no. Read the book. Um, <laughs> I I have learned, I have, I've dealt with young men who are sexual pests. It's annoying. And I'm a 48 woman who's eight year old woman who's sober and does not have a problem saying no, but it's irritating and it's tiresome and it wears you down and it's, it's not good behavior. I mean, the thing is, is like, yes, women do want guys to come after them. They do want to be taken by like 1% of the male population. The other 99% of the population we don't want, or maybe it's 10%. I don't know. I just, yeah, I pulled that statistic out of my back tooth. That's right. Well, a couple of things. Number one, I admire that you, because of the way, who you are and what you've read and what you've been through, so very quickly, um, see the story that she's told and pretty much take it as, at face value with the codicils that you're saying. Like, yes, he was maybe a kind of a famous guy and it would maybe be a little bit of a statusy thing. But I, I, you know, especially after reading that request for money, I, I just, I had questions. I had questions and I'm not yeah, saying he's, he's not a sex pest, but it's like, you know, you have to be okay. Another thing, a couple her friends probably told her to do that. Her friends probably okay. told her to do that. And she was probably half joking, but like, you know, angry and she's ticked off. And unfortunately she has come of age in a social media world where dunking on people and dunking particularly on straight men that you're attracted to is some warped sense of victory. And I, I don't like it and I don't really get it because it doesn't get you what you want, but it gets you something else, which is a feeling of being strong. And she probably felt very empowered. It was a joke. Okay. You know? But it's, yeah, but it's, but here's the thing. It's so funny that you said, well, her friends probably told her to do that meeting, the Venmo thing. I thought you met her friends probably told her to go out and say, no, you know, expose this guy. Who knows? It could be one. It could be neither. I have a question though. I mean, I hear what we're saying here about the culture right now and sex and people are confused and it was game giving and blah, blah, blah. Do people can aren't don't people possess an internal compass? I mean, we do. 
we, I mean, if we know we do want this glass of orange juice or we don't want this glass of orange juice, if we know we do want to have sex with this guy, whether we're going to like play a little hard to get out sex with a dead chicken. <laughs> no, dead chicken. See, here's the thing. I know that I don't want that. Okay. How do I, I know don't that? want that either? No, I'm I, just I, saying, I, can somebody else do it? I just what? want to be on record. I'm okay. not wanting to have sex with a dead chicken. Listen, what I'm yes. saying is that we do. I mean, I understand we are influenced by the internet and culture and TikTok and the pretty girl next door and the crazy person over here. We do have internal compasses and we can follow them. And sometimes people don't. And that's fine. I wrote, I'm going to link something I hear that I wrote about um, um, the rape loophole. And, you know, nobody's able to say consent, if, if, if give consent if they're drunk or they are or whatever. I do not know what happened in that room. I do not know what made her came forward now. I do not know what sort of status or sucker or satisfaction or self-loathing or whatever she will receive from this. But I do have one question. This is a serious question. Who does it help to no longer have what we already termed was pretty empathetic and interesting work in the world? We don't have that anymore. That's gone now, and we're not allowed to have him. Now, of course, he may have a second act. We hope that people do. Though I'm sure some people hope he doesn't. I'm sure some people are like, get the fucking ice flow. Stick him on it. Bye-bye. You're not coming back. We are done with you. How does it help the world to not have someone bringing us the stories of others, which is what this person did? Okay, Nancy, here's the part where I point to the whiteboard behind me and I tap the word that I've written on it. And it is. That word was? Schadenfreude. So they experienced Schadenfreude. So that's more important. People's feeling of Schadenfreude is definitely a more worthy thing to have in the world than it is to have. We don't even know what kind of reporting this person could have done because we're not allowed to know anymore because he's now verboten. This is all German. We're going to speak. The rest of this podcast will be in German. Um, Jawohl. Jawohl. I, ein bisschen. I uh, think, I think. If this, if, I'm running out of German words. Right, uh, I, I think the choice that the woman made, I understand it. We see it all the time. It is part of the movement that is, will never not be a part of our culture. And I get it. I, Can I bring up some. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think there are other ways to go about what she did. But we've already gone long and I'm hesitant to bring up this next part, but I really want to just say this one thing. Yes. Which is that you asked if people have internal moral compasses. And of course we do. Um, But one thing that's really interesting about young men, and if we have any young men in our audience, I'd love to hear more from them. You don't have to post on. Uh, the discussion board, although it's great, but it's only for paid subscribers. You can also email us at smokeandpodcast at gmail.com, right? Or send their questions, as they used to say on Car Talk, on the back of a $20 bill and mail them to us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but I have learned more recently that young men do not have the consciousness, the like moral consciousness that older men do. And I learned this from two sources. One was the Vietnam documentary that yes, uh, yes, Ken that Burns I'm did. I'm watching now. One of the guys talks about how 18-year-olds are kind of the perfect, like, v- like 
the perfect thing to create a killing machine because they don't necessarily feel bad about it. They're so sort of jacked with testosterone. And that was fascinating. The other source of that is, again, Jonathan Haidt, um, who has spoken about how, like, if you want to find something that's like diagnostically similar to a a sociopath at at scale, look at an 18-year-old boy. Um, so these interactions are happening when Andrew Callaghan is like 20, 21. He seems like beyond his years mentally, but behind his years romantically and socially, you know? And I think that, that he did lose track of his moral compass. And I think that's why I think the YouTube video, even though it has all those bingo card words, um, is actually like sincere. And I think there's something very profound and powerful about a young man trying to be more than he was once. I think on that note, we are going to skip over into our bonus part of our um, episode. Sarah, I think it's kind of a tasty little treat. You want to talk about it? You want to tease it a little bit? We're talk Milf Manor. <laughs> and then we'll Who tell- wants to come to Milf Manor? <laughs> and then we can also reveal, we each took the Are You a Milf test? And we will uh, we will reveal what our, our scores were in the One bonus. One of us did really well. Hush out. Shh. Okay, stick around. Have you ever went over a friend's house to eat and the food just ain't no good? I mean, the macaroni soggy, the peas almost, and the chicken tastes like wood. So you try to play it off like you think you can by saying that you're full. And then your friend says, Mama, he's just being polite. He ain't finished your honor, that's bull. So your heart starts pumping and you think of a lie and you say that you already ate. And your friend says, man, there's plenty of food, so you pile some more on your plate. But while the sticky food steaming, your mind starts to dream of the moment it's time to leave. And then you look at your plate and your chicken's slowly rotting into something that looks like cheese. Oh, so you say, that's it, I got to leave this place, I don't care what these people think. I'm just sitting here making myself nauseous with this ugly food that stinks. Oh, so you bust out the door while it's still closed, still sick from the food you ate. And then you run to the store for quick relief from a bottle of K.O. Pectate. And then you call your friend two weeks later to see how he has been. And he says, I understand.